0: Hey, this is Rob, and that's Micaiah, and you are listening to You Forgot One. Today on You Forgot One, Led Zeppelin's untitled fourth studio album. Micaiah, Led Zeppelin's four, Led Zeppelin's Zoso, four unique images Representing each of the four band members, simply referred to the album as Four. It has been given a lot of names over the years, but we generally refer to it as Led Zeppelin's Four, given their first three albums were One, Two, and Three. Led Zeppelin's Four, Mikhail, what do we need to know right up front?
1: Yeah, it's very fitting that this is our follow up to our conversation about Big Star's Third, because it is that same conversation of. What do you call this album? Um, and like you said, the the three before this, you know, were you know with Roman numerals, you know, one, two, and three. So it just kind of made sense to call this one four, even though it has no title. Um, it's even stranger than that. There's no information on the cover of this record. Um, no information on the back. Of the record. Of course, when you bought it, I'm sure on the shrink, it had a hype sticker. And it was telling you this is Led Zeppelin because Atlantic isn't insane. Led Zeppelin want their money for this product. They believe in, uh, but nevertheless, it's, um, uh, kind of an ugly album cover too. It's not my favorite of these Zeppelin album covers. Not as bad as houses of the holy, but not as good as the first or the third or physical graffiti. Um, that being said, um, uh, on these eight tracks you know it's one of the shorter zeppelin albums mm-hmm. um most of their albums are like 7 to 9 songs um and this one's eight clocking into like just over 42 minutes i think and um time well spent you know there are uh they're coming off of the third album which uh kind of lukewarm response from critics didn't uh, set the world on fire. Um, So I guess they really were trying to make a statement with this album.
0: Yeah. And and what's strange to me is I particularly like three. I think, I think their third album is a great album, Mm -hmm. but was not well received critically. And because of how kind of mixed the reviews were for this album, they never toured on Led Zeppelin three. So Led Zeppelin three comes out October of 1970 by the start of December, they're back in the studio working already on the follow-up album. And they record from December, 1970 to February, 1971 in their country house, Headley Grange, 8th of November, 1971, Atlantic records releases Led Zeppelin four. And again, the name of the band and the name of the album not on the cover or the back cover of this album. I mean, there there's a lot of mystery that surrounds this album, but yet this album, which again, eight songs, relatively short, four songs on each side, generally regarded as the, not just the best Led Zeppelin album, but one of the great rock albums of all times, one of the kind of precursors to hard rock and heavy metal. And I mean, you want to talk about where this album shows up on some of the list? You cl- the UK's Classic Rock uh, magazine calls this the number one rock album ever made. Oh. Uh, guitar Magazine calls this number two, the number two guitar album of all time. Uh, Mojo in the UK called this the 24th greatest album of all time. Rolling Stone and their 500 Greatest Albums Ever list of 2020 called this number 58, greatest album of all time. Uh, NME, the the only ranking that puts this album outside of the top 100 when NME says this is the 106th. Best album of all time. So the worst, the worst ranking in terms of of all time that Led Zeppelin's four has received is one hundred and sixth. So every major publication says this is one of the greatest hundred albums of all time. It is pretty unanimously the highest ranked Led Zeppelin album, and it is a phenomenal album. I mean, well, here's some more. stuff I mean, it's one of the best-selling albums
1: of all time still. oh yeah it, it came out 50 years ago and it's gone platinum i mean it's gone diamond yeah uh, so i mean it's gone platinum numerous times i think mm-hmm.
0: it is like sold, 20, it, six it six has sold over tw- it's sold over 25 million copies in the u.s alone it has yeah. sold over 37 million copies globally
1: yeah so i mean we we are very seriously talking about one of the biggest albums of all time, you know, it's, it's no joke. Um, but I wanted to call attention to a couple of things. Like the first publications you named were like classic rock magazine and like guitar magazine or guitar world or whatever. And for a bunch of, I mean, we, we've talked about um, pretty much nothing, but pretty classic albums with a few exceptions so far. Um, but this is the only one that's really kind of firmly in that classic rock genre, you know, like, because you wouldn't think of Dylan as really classic rock and you wouldn't even put, you wouldn't put the clash in classic rock and you wouldn't put, you know, uh, even someone like Neil Young in the classic rock category, you know, so that I, when I, when I think of that category, I kind of think of your Led Zeppelin Mm -hmm. ACDC Aerosmith like that 70s rock that's still rooted in the blues Mm -hmm. but it's that moment where they're also
0: filling up stadiums yeah it's it's huge but but it is not pop in any way
1: yeah it's 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 post british new wave so it's not they're not doing the not british new wave uh british invasion Mm -hmm. so they're not interested in the kind of things that the beatles Certainly not the kinks, um, but more similar to the who, but with more blues than the who, but not quite the Rolling Stones either. There's something else happening here um, that is like, as you were saying earlier, kind of that precursor to hard rock and and metal music. Mm -hmm. Um, and, And a lot of that is, I think it's just
0: how enormous the sound is. Now and let's talk about that because you know when we talk about great bands, there is the tendency for us in in and maybe this is fair or unfair, but there there are a lot of bands that for as talented as the band is we, we kind of end up focusing on kind of a, a key songwriter or like a key kind of band leader, or maybe two kind of competing songwriters competing. So, so it's either the situation where there's like a single dominant songwriter, or it is a, you know, a, a John and Paul situation where, you know, what we see in the Beatles. So it's, it's, it's that kind of picture. What's so interesting about Led Zeppelin is that, each of these four band members are bringing so much to the table that is so unique from one another. And and so you really have this kind of rare circumstance where you have an all time great guitar player in Jimmy Page. You have a phenomenal vocalist in Robert Plant. You have not just a great bass player, but, Maybe the unsung hero of Led Zeppelin in John Paul Jones, who's who's kind of the classically trained, the one who thinks in terms of mixing and production and orchestration, uh, but John Paul Jones and everything he brings to the table. And then, of course, maybe the greatest rock drummer of all time, John Bonham. And, and I, you know, so you and I, Makai, you and I have played music together. Um, you and I have both been in bands and, and both have the experience of approaching music, not just as fans of music, but also approaching music as musicians. Mm-hmm. And so I can say, I, I can remember being in seventh or eighth grade, you know, a year or two into playing the guitar and sitting and trying to learn all the guitar parts on this album. Mm-hmm. I have never been a drummer. I I don't have the coordination for it. I love, I love listening to drums, but I just don't have the coordination for it. Especially I don't have the coordination to play drums the way John Bonham does. But Micaiah, for you as a drummer, talk to me about who John Bonham is and what, what our listeners need to know about why John Bonham is so important to the history of rock drumming,
1: sure, yeah, and there there are definite camps, you know. Um, kind of the debate would be, or the two different camps might be Keith Moon and John Bonham, mm-hmm. right? So, w- which camp do you fall in there? Um, but it seems like most people lean John Bonham, um, and then of course, uh, people will also eventually root for people like Neil Pert, who has the biggest drum set of all time. Um, but no one sounds bigger, I think, than John Bonham. Mm-hmm. And he's someone who I think you would call a drummer's drummer. And a lot of that's in the mix for these records. Um, the drums are really loud in the mix. Like it, You know, a lot of times the drums are there to really keep time, but John Bonham's drums are there to knock you off your feet they are they are loud in the mix they are carrying you know these songs in a way that is just uh i mean i keep saying enormous but i'm gonna keep saying talking about big things because he he had a big classic drum set also he had a huge bass drum large toms a huge gong behind him Mm -hmm. you know so i mean he i mean there's a reason why it sounds as big as it does and he was Um, a big
0: guy I mean, physically, a very big guy, very powerful guy. And he played, I mean, thunderously on those drums. He has a heavy
1: hand, right? There's nothing subtle about the way John Bottom plays. You know, there's, there are a lot of nuances, um, but they're so loud. that I mean, they're, they're very much in your face. And it's, it's an interesting thing to mix an album, to have the drums kind of that much in the mix, like right up front. I mean, listen to the first song on the first Zeppelin record. When you hear that, you know that this is a different kind of band, and more specifically, a different kind of drummer. You know, and when I when I think of this band, and as someone who was learning about music as a as a teenager and learning to play everything, you know, I got a guitar first, and but then everyone had a guitar, you know. Then I got a bass, you know, and then we were in a band with two guitarists and the drummer. Quiz, we didn't have a drummer, so I started playing drums. You know, what I mean, I just I've always kind of been the guy who was just like. Whatever's needed, I'll pick it up and I'll, and I'll take that over. Um, but drums just always suited me best. But doing that, you know, Led Zeppelin were kind of the first band for me where listening to them, I could understand the purpose and the reason for each individual member and instrument. Mm. You know, because a lot, a lot of young people don't want to pick up the bass because they don't know what a bass player does they don't have the cool guitar riffs or guitar solos or drum solos so does a bass player even do when you listen to these records like this is what a bassist does this is incredible you know and of course you have jimmy page who i think on for our podcast is kind of the first like guitar hero we're talking about
0: We'll, Uh, we'll have we'll have at least another one this season In Jimi Hendrix, but yeah, this is, this is the first kind of legitimate guitar hero we've talked about.
1: Yeah. And he could be, again, one of, one of the best to ever do. I mean, someone who was a, a, you know, was in skiffle bands and then a studio musician and then worked with the Yardbirds uh, before doing all this. I mean, a, a truly versatile, brilliant guitar player.
0: Mm -hmm. Uh, And and by the way, quick, quick shout out for our listeners. Uh, We want to encourage you to check out the documentary. It might get loud. Uh, which is basically uh, looking at the history of rock guitar playing through Jimmy Page, U2's The Edge, and Jack White, um, and a phenomenal documentary where you get to see a lot of the behind-the-scenes behind, behind the, the scene story of how Jimmy Page developed his style of guitar playing that we hear so prominently on this album.
1: My favorite thing about that documentary is when Jimmy Page starts playing whole lot of love and then jack white and the edge kind of stand to their feet they're like oh my god jimmy page is playing a whole lot of love for us right now and they just kind of can't believe that's happening um and then edge when he's playing um it's just like and these are all my pedals listen to what yeah. my pedals can do <laughs> you know yeah so anyway listening to all this band in particular and the way these albums are mixed and just how good these individuals are really taught me kind of the function of each member in a band and what they bring to the table because each person has their own part and they, they create these own parts that are very interesting right so you don't just have these incredible riffs and solos from jimmy page but what the bass is doing is really intricate and really fantastic and what the drums are doing are not just there to keep time do a cool fill get your solo and get out right? Everything that John Bonham is doing, you know, he, he's writing intricate drum parts the way a guitarist would write interesting guitar parts, Mm -hmm. you know, and all of that should clash and not sound great at all. (laughs) It should sound like post a love Supreme era Coltrane stuff where he has competing horn players and competing drummers doing different time signatures and overblown notes, but it's, it's not right. It's, this really incredibly sophisticated blues rock that is also inspired by folk but also because you have one on there very inspired by jazz and all of these coming together to create really what we call classic rock mm-hmm. you know um very firmly classic rock uh, a very agreeable kind of form of rock you know like this is for everyone to kind of show up for you know like punk rock kids i think can even be like yeah i mean zeppelin rules you know i'm not gonna listen to them all the time but like come on let's be real you know listen to communication breakdown you know what i mean like that's you know punk uh, rock punk rock kids uh, could even get into that You know, everyone's dad, everyone in the family can kind of get behind Zeppelin, you know, because a lot of it is Robert Plant being a really, you know, having a gift for, for melody in a way that makes the songs very interesting to listen to, but also because of the intricacies of these, all these parts. But I think as a drummer, the appeal of John Bonham is, you know, the, the mix of these songs and these and these records call attention to him, which makes him a very easy person to look at. Uh, He's also a tragic figure in the same Mm -hmm. way that Keith Moon is. Um, We lost him at a very young age of 30 or in his early thirties, an alcohol, you know, incident, you know, and as a young person who was loving all of these like rock stars of the seventies, but learning that they all died because of drugs and alcohol, I was just like, well, this is baloney, which, you know, as much as I was getting into rock and roll, I was becoming equally just like a square who wanted nothing to do with drugs or alcohol. Cause I'm like, well, every great person, jazz Joplin, Jimmy Hendrix, Keith Moon, John Bonham, all die. These like arbitrary kind of alcohol and pills kind of were choking on their own vomit. These gods of rock music choking on vomit like that. And that's, that's it. You know, it, it drove me nuts as a kid, but Also watching John Bonham. When you watch John Bonham, it's incredible. Um, And when I was a teenager in 2003, when I started getting Zeppelin, they released a couple of big Zeppelin DVDs. Um, And that was huge for me to get to see John Bonham, who's just a maniac behind the kit, you know? But it's not the same way that like Keith Moon playing the drums at Monterey Pop Festival where he like destroys his drum kit right, is John Bonham's destroying, but just differently. He's playing with multiple sticks in his hands. He's playing with his bare hands, but not in a way just to call attention. Like, there's something about what he's doing that serves the function of the song. It always serves the function of the song or the music. Even when he's doing a twenty minute, 20-minute plus version of Moby Dick, which just is a drum solo from the second record, but also a live staple for them you know it's um it is a journey right with him on the drums um his speed is very interesting um uh, on the toms which of course you know just like any like fast guitar player but i think what insp- what makes him such an influential drummer especially for metal music and i think even like kind of the more hardcore punk and, and hardcore music and, like metalcore is he had a very fast foot
0: Mm-hmm.
1: um so he can do um what people would do with either two kick drums or with the double bass pedal right he can do with one foot yeah and you can hear that on black dog
0: yeah where you, he's essentially doing triplet fills with with his feet not with his hands with one foot yeah you know
1: it's and that i think is one of his legacies and that, that, that's a drummer thing and that's where you're like because when you're watching it and you're like, he doesn't have two kits, he doesn't have a, you know, the classic Iron Cobra double bass pedal. This man just has a foot that's been, mm, you know, just like kissed by the gods, you know. So it's it's those kinds of things about him that uh, really interest drummers. You know what he can do without like Neil Peart's drum set that goes all the way around and that he has to be like lowered in or crawl into, you know, is what he can do with a tom, two floor toms that snare and like a couple rides and and, and he can sound like the biggest drummer to ever sit behind a kit you know so i think that's no those things i'm sure more uh, that i'll remember later are kinds of the the things that interest drummers in particular about john bonham and what interests non-musicians to get into start uh, playing the drums
0: yeah. And and one of the things I think, you know, you kind of alluded to is the way in which John bottom and the intricacy of how he plays, how well it matches the intricacy of what Jimmy page is playing and what John ball Jones is playing. And the way the three of them, I mean, on this album, with the exception of, of an addition of an outside instrumentalist playing piano on rock and roll, all of the music on this entire album is these three guys. These, these three guys are playing all of these parts and then Robert plant with his, uh, I, I don't know a better way to say this, but this almost kind of like sexual and like religious uh, ecstasy that yeah. it, it comes out in his singing. But again, like, there there's a lot on this album where you hear robert plant and you realize that even as he's kind of going into these weird almost kind of like moany sounds in his singing Uh the unbelievable control he has in terms of what his voice is doing and where it's going and now and now remember again this is an album that's made before um you know, bands were using click tracks as they were, you know, in the process of recording albums. This is before bands were using any form of auto tune. So there, there are some things that, you know, if this album were to come out today, we may hear some of these things almost as imperfections, but the way they function together on this album could not sound more perfect. Right. And, and so I, I want to kind of take a, just a pause here. And we want to give a a break for our listeners and tell you a little bit about this week's independent record store of the week and to let you hear from our sponsor anchor, but we're going to be back in just a few minutes and Makai and I are going to go track by track through the eight songs on Led Zeppelin's fourth album. Mm -hmm. This is Rob, and I want to take a quick second to tell you about this week's Independent Record Store of the Week. Our Independent Record Store of the Week is from my hometown of Fort Lauderdale, Florida, Radioactive Records. Radioactive Records is located at 845 North Federal Highway, Fort Lauderdale, Florida. You can find them online at radio-active-records.com You can reach them by phone at area code 954-762-9488 And I would love for you to pick up any Led Zeppelin album from them today. Hey!
2: Hey! I said the way you move, gon' make you sweat, gon' make you groove.
0: An incredible opening track to this album. Silence. And then we're brought in to an acapella. Hey, Hey mama said the way you move. I mean, we, we are launched into this album, a, a screaming lyric from Robert plant into this beautiful, beautiful music. Mikhail, what do you think of black dog?
1: A quintessential Zeppelin track. Mm-hmm. All right. um, and this song in particular is what keeps them tethered to their blues roots, and it's a very smart opening track because their third album lacked a lot of the blues, kind of blues rock that they were famous for on their first two records. Now, there's a eight minute blues number on the third album um, that is a Led Zeppelin Staple, of course, but I think they may be criticized for straying too far from that. Because they focus on other kind of folk instruments. You know, there's a Gallows Pole has a huge banjo part in it. Somehow, you know, but so to open this with a blues number, I think is very smart. Um and to specifically do that kind of call and response where playing a cappella is just a powerhouse vocalist, starts it backed by the band just rocking on this blues riff right this just you know also kind of a a, one of these like precursor precursors to metal Mm -hmm. also and and the drums again are are very interesting um and you don't know it until you put on headphones and you sit behind a kit and you go to play it and you're like wait what wait what does he do Wait, he pauses there? Like, there, there are just interesting choices that he's making and and not making, right? It's that jazz thing of like, oh, he actually doesn't hit the cymbal there or he doesn't hit the snare there and instead does the thing with his foot. Like, there, there are a number of things that where you, when you listen to the, and this is a great band, if you, especially if you're a musician, to listen to it four times through and pick a different member of the band to focus on each time you listen to it. You know, which is how I learned to play music, essentially, and, and to learn how to understand music was to do things like that, specifically, like, with this record, really, a number of these songs. Um, yeah, I mean, it rules. I mean, this is a, uh, a great opener, uh, a great Zeppelin track, and I think um, perfect way to start this record uh, in particular.
0: For, for all the instruments that we have in our house, the one that I play the most, I have a, I keep a resonator guitar in our living room in front of my record collection. And so that's, you know, if I'm, if I'm just hanging out and sitting on the couch or something, that's simply the instrument that I pick up. And I would say there is not a week that goes by that I don't pick that guitar up and play this song. Um, it is, it's one of those, it's one of those things as a guitar player. It's, it's one of those pieces you work for a long time early on to figure out how to play. And the only way to figure out how to do it well is just that repetition where you kind of bury that song into the muscle memory. And, you know, here I am now at 41 and I still, you know, there's still a part of me. I pick up a guitar and I'm, I'm suddenly a 14 year old boy all over again, listening to this record in my room. I use this riff to test out
1: every amp whenever I try a new amp or a different amp. I use, I use this riff. This is one of my go-to riffs.
0: Yeah. And, in in and, and again, I, you know, you talked about John Bonham being a drummer's drummer. I, I think that for, especially for people who are musicians over the last 50 years, I think whether or not Led Zeppelin's one of your favorite bands or whether or not you would consider this one of the best albums of all time, I don't know anyone who is a guitar player or drummer um, in the last 50 years who has not had a period of time in which they sat down in, you know, repetition after repetition after repetition, trying to learn to play the parts of these songs.
1: No, absolutely. I made friends this way. You know, I, I was teaching everyone I knew how to play guitar, especially if, I knew, if, if they knew how to play it better than me. Mm-hmm. I'd be like, Hey man, listen to Zeppelin too. And like, see if you can like figure out how to play this heartbreaker riff and then like teach it to me, you know? So I was, I was getting everyone, I mean, yeah, my, like my friend Brennan, um, I would get him to kind of learn the riffs and I would just watch him and then I would try to figure out how to play the riffs. And um, we had those Zeppelin DVDs and we would just watch them all. It's not even like, cause at that time we didn't want to start a band or being a band like Led Zeppelin. That just that wasn't our intention at all, but we were just enthralled mm-hmm. with these musicians and their and their capabilities.
0: second track on this album a a a very fun song but you and i have different opinions on this is you and i were preparing to record this we were kind of you know kind of trading back and forth how we rank these songs on the album and for me this is among my five favorite tracks on the album rock and roll is dead last for you um But but for me, again, this is this is just a fun big rock song. Like there's the, there's nothing particularly interesting about it, which which I think may, may be your kind of you know the, the thing that takes away from it. Um but but it is for me, it is this band wearing all of their influences and all the things they love on their sleeve and just doing a big fun song. And You know, I, I think that sometimes as we think about bands and the amount of time they spend working on new music and, you know, kind of how we hold them as, you know, how how do we compare them creatively? I I think it's also fun to remember that people who play music together and do play play music as a living, you know, yes, it's a job and yes, there's, there's those aspects to it, but I love a song like this when you can just see these guys having fun.
1: Well, I I always like when a rock and roll band references rock and roll in their mm-hmm. songs. I, don't, I I always I just
0: have always it's very Chuck Berry of them to do. Well, it's
1: very Little Richard and Eddie Cochran mm-hmm. in particular. Um, I think the the B itself comes from a Little rich song, and at this point in their touring career, they had been. Um, doing these kind of medleys where they would work Eddie Cochran songs like into their their live set, so it's very much coming from that. And the ooh yeah, ooh yeah, um, is very uh, Little Richard mm-hmm. textbook, you know. And and um, you know uh, the guy from the Rolling Stones plays the piano uh, on this track because one of the only Zeppelin songs with an outside musician on it. Um, and we should say this too that. Not only are they at this big giant manor uh, recording this, but they're using the Rolling Stones like mobile recording studio to make Mm -hmm. this record as well. Um, Hence why he's there as a, as a sound engineer and as a a pianist on here. So again, yeah, straightforward rock and roll song that has been appropriated by car commercials now in the 21st century. Um, And for them, uh, a very typical opener, closer or encore um for their for their live sets and that's where it's best put you know but i i i do like it as a second track on this record that is going from the blues and then straight into rock and roll mm-hmm. you know, as as kind of an early rock and roll
0: pastiche uh, i think it's fitting so going from your least favorite song on the album to mine third track the battle of evermore
2: She turned to gold The Prince of Peace all in the valley where oh, all the seas of happen there ground is rich from tender care repay do not forget oh, no, no, no. dance in the dark night to
0: this is this is one of the songs that i i get what they're trying to do with this song but the the mandolin and the kind of acoustic thing they're going for, I feel like the, the much more successful version of this is on the B-side in the song Going to California. Um, Battle of Evermore feels uh, just a little self-indulgent to me, which maybe makes it the perfect song to lead into Stairway to Heaven, which might be the most self-indulgent song on the album. But "Battle of Evermore" is one of those songs that just it it has is never clicked for me. What about you, Macai?
1: "Battle of Evermore" for me, I mean, first of all, it's that dorky Lord of the Rings Tolkien thing Mm -hmm. they do in the second record. They mentioned Gollum, you know. So it's them kind of turning back to that, you know. And I think where they're recording this record lends itself to this kind of song and this kind of songwriting. Um, there's an instrumental track that came out on the deluxe edition. Maybe try listening to that and, and kind of separate the queen of light took her bow kind of like writing a yeah. plant gives to it mm-hmm. because the, the music to me, cause when you listen to the lyrics, they can be kind of distracting. You yeah. can feel embarrassed about listening to it, but the, the melody and also a, a vocalist, uh, that's Sandy from, um, a Fairpoint Convention mm-hmm. is on this track um, quite beautifully, um, but there's something very uh, theatrical and cinematic about this mm-hmm. um, this track. I've always loved it for that reason. Um,
0: my, my, it, talking about a reason to to love this song, being its theatrical nature, Battle of Evermore is almost single handedly responsible for perhaps the funniest scene in spinal tap and oh how they danced the little children of stone age
2: beneath the haunted moon for fear that daybreak i come too soon
1: I mean, this. Yeah, there. This is part of that trend,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, but I don't even think Zeppelin's the worst offender of that weird metal trend. Yeah, uh, maybe. I don't know, maybe they're the start of it, uh, but I don't even think they're the worst. I don't, I don't. I don't think they're the most guilty of of that kind of trope.
0: Um, but but I do and, think you make a good point, which is listen to this as an instrumental track, separated from some of the, you know. Uh, some of the you know fantasy literary Dungeons and Dragons kind of stuff of the lyrical content because it yeah. is it's interesting it's interesting what's happening musically it, it just it, it it turns into this thing that again was was a weirdly popular thing in early seventies and mid seventies rock music that I I don't really understand where it came from or, or why, like why it kind of became this hugely popular thing for this brief moment in time to have this kind of very like fantasy specific uh, storyline in.
1: Well, there are, there are a few things, you know, and a lot of it is because of, and I I don't, I'm not, I'm going to be a bad historian here, but potentially has to do with the animated versions of Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit. Mm -hmm. probably coming out around this time, the Rankin and Bass, you know, versions. Um, and then also the game, literally dungeons and dragons, you know, around this time, maybe, maybe that's later in the seventies and into the eighties, but you know, there, there is that kind of stuff happening this time. And also there's a, the Jesus freak movement is happening. Mm -hmm. Um, and the more, that goes on there's the more the pendulum swings the other way and people become interested in like paganism and uh, the occult uh, certainly jimmy page is interested in that you know so the more that you know things push toward that the more other people are going to be drawn toward you know quite the opposite so there's a push-pull thing there culturally uh, with religion and spirituality but also uh, the resurgence of like Tolkien's literature and mm-hmm. animated adaptations of those things, and I mean, this is a time when Kubrick wanted to make Lord of the Rings with the Beatles. Like that's a conversation that's being had around this time, mm-hmm. you know. So it, it is in the popular culture, and they're English, so you know they 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 just they've had an affinity for Tolkien much longer than you know us in the states uh, who really came on board with the film adaptations and then by way of the book, I think a number of people
0: and, and again like you said in in they're recording this in the British countryside and yeah. so I mean there is very much a kind of Hobbiton feel to where, where they're recording this album so so I guess when you give the Battle of Evermore that context it, it becomes a little more forgivable
1: it becomes more understandable but it is still like a very dorky song yeah. um but but music but I, I just I still find it fascinating that this is the the great metal album, great hard rock album, and track three is Battle of Evermore.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You, re- you know what I mean? Like that's pretty wild, you know. Because like, and then the next few songs are Stairway to Heaven, uh, Misty Mountain Hop going to California these are not hard rock metal songs but it's always given that designation and even though within the eight songs half of them not very fast not very hard not very metal um so that's kind of been one thing that's always kind of fascinated me fascinated me about this record in particular always kind of given being awarded those kind of designations
2: All it glitters is gold, and she's buying the stairway to hell. When she gets there, she knows if the stores are all closed. With a word, she can't get what she came for. She's buying a stairway to hear. There's a sign on the wall But she wants to be sure Cause you know sometimes words have to mean In a tree by the brook There's a songbird who sings sometimes.
0: And, you know, speaking of of that kind of the things that are cinematic and theatrical, we have what is often thought of as the signature Led Zeppelin song, the side A closer, Stairway to Heaven, which feel, I mean, feels like a song written for or pulled out of a rock opera.
1: Well, it's an epic, right? I mean, it's it's more like an epic poem. It's something... Um, you expect from Chaucer before you'd expect from Led Zeppelin, mm-hmm. you know, um, because they've written long songs before, but this is different. You know, this
0: has, this has like a, like a you it know like, movement to it. It's operatic almost.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's clearly, you know, broken up into act one and an act two, you know, very classic kind of play structure, you know, um, there's a part one, part two, but I think that's also, you know, that, you know, I mean, let's talk about this song. I mean, so I've been very curious as to where this conversation might go, because this is a song that people have like reverence for. This is very much in the sacred text of rock and roll and like rock and roll ballads. And uh, I mean, and that's the, that's the best thing for, you know, it's a, it's a ballad you know um and it's something that like in the 80s people really lose because i feel like a lot of like metal particularly hair metal bands go for the ballad in the 80s and they lose sight of like what makes stairway to heaven interesting Mm -hmm. because then the rock ballad becomes like every rose has its thorn yeah and not stairway you know what i mean so you you know, this song has so much influence and so many bands after this want to write their Stairway to Heaven and nobody does.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Nobody does. I'm someone who heard this song maybe even after I saw Wayne's World. So this no is a struggle.
0: Stairway denied.
1: Yeah, this is a struggle. You know, um, finding Stairway, you know, so you learn by watching Wayne's World that there is a reverence for this song. And then so there's a joke about it. But then that joke becomes as popular as the song itself. So it's it's kind of hard in a post-Wayne's World, uh, you know, what, Wayne's World world to have kind of reverence for it. So it's really hard now to go back and think as someone 50 years ago hearing this for the first time, either on the record or seeing them live and hearing it that way for the first time. It's kind of hard to reclaim it. Um, that being said, it's a, it's a good song, um, you know, and it's it's got a, it's got a really great groove. It's got a guitar solo in it that is as recognizable as any, like, melody in a pop song.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: You know, you can mouth the solo to Stairway just like you could sing I Wanna Hold Your Hand.
0: Uh, the hundred greatest uh, rock guitar songs of all time and Stairway to Heaven came in at number three. Mm -hmm. And, you you know, basically connecting all of that to this solo, Um, you know, Rolling Stone and their, you know, 500 greatest songs of all time. This is number 31. This, this is a huge song and, the point you're making, I I think it's actually interesting. So I consider it kind of three acts of, of this song. And and I think they're, they're pretty distinct because again, you think about this as like this huge hard rock song, but the first third of this song is an acoustic guitar and a recorder.
1: Yeah. And John Paul Jones, by the way, playing that recorder, again, the most versatile musician in this band. Absolutely. Um, And there, there's been a lot of, you know, a lot of people in the John Paul Jones corner might be like, hey, let's not forget this guy. You know, he he also did the string arrangements on R.E.M.'s Automatic for the People. Like, this is mm-hmm. a cool dude. You know?
0: Well, and John Paul Jones, even now, I mean, John Paul Jones is still an accomplished, uh, you know, producer. Even now, he's still, he's still working with artists and still producing and arranging. But you have this song that the first third of it is an acoustic guitar and a recorder. The second third of it is... You introduce all the electric instruments, so now you have an electric bass, you have an electric guitar, and, and the drums, and then the final third is is essentially the guitar solo into yeah. the conclusion of and she's buying a stairway to heaven completely a cappella at the end of the song, and so you've you've made this entire kind of operatic turn in the course of the nearly eight minutes of this song. What's wild to me is the number of people, you know, even in the nineties, when I was in high school, the number of people who would like request this song for dances in like the middle school and high school level, like yes. the weirdest thing to me is, is like the, the like middle school or high school make out to go along with the guitar solo at the end of stairway to heaven.
1: Like, yeah. That's that a weirdly I... unique thing. Yeah, that's a tradition I never understood, but it was still around when I was younger. I, 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 I mean, because I know about it, certainly teenagers do not think about this now. There, yeah, there's yeah. no chance, you know? But yeah, you're right. There, this was thought of, and maybe this is because of things like that 70s show is maybe why my generation is still like familiar with it that way, that it was the makeout track. Yeah. You know? You know, and maybe it's because maybe it's because it's eight minutes. You got plenty of time to kind of flirt, gentle touch, and then make out by the drums with the guitar solo. You know, maybe you know I, I don't I don't know how that tradition started, but it is very funny.
0: So I, I want to introduce a, a hot take here. You and I have talked about this album, in, in in, and I think I think we would agree there are you know more favorite and least favorite songs on this album. But there's not a bad track of the eight tracks on this album. I mean, these, these, are all, these are all good songs. So here's my hot take. Even though Side A opens with Black Dog and closes with Stairway to Heaven, I think Side B of this album is better than Side A.
1: I think that's more popular opinion than you might think.
0: And, and, and here's why I'm going to start it off. My favorite track on the whole album is the side B opener, Misty Mountain Hop. First four albums, this is as close as they get to that kind of pop rock style of music. And they do it remarkably well on Misty Mountain Hop. I mean, this is, this is a catchy pop rock song. And it, it, I mean, really, this, this is one of the most enjoyable tracks on this album for me. Well, it's got a great
1: groove. I yeah. mean, it's, it, it sounds a little glam. Hmm. Um, which is emerging at this time. It's the same year that Electric Warrior by T. Rex comes out, and, and,
0: and they're you becoming can one Absolutely, of the greatest- hear that. In you, you can hear that glam rock in in the sound of this song for sure.
1: Yeah. Um. And and Hunky Dory by by Bowie comes out the same year. So I think they have an eye on that. Um. And they're after this, they're going to lean into more kind of groovy kind of stuff. Houses of the Holy has a lot of more groovier tracks physical graffiti has a lot more groovier tracks so misty mountain hop becomes kind of a new template for the band that is not rooted in the blues but something a little bit more groovy mm-hmm. um, so this is the song on this album for as much as they have like the rock and roll pastiche the big ballad all the tolkien stuff and the blues rock this is actually the one that really points to what this band's gonna sound like on their last four records.
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with that.
1: This song in this record has always been really good for me as someone who's interested in the 70s, even as a little kid who didn't feel that far removed from the 70s, because I had like older parents and was interested in movies about the 70s and music from that time. This song in particular has always been a really good transport for me. To kind of set the tone and the vibe of that era. And uh, so that's always been kind of a, the appeal outside of it just being like a great groovy track. Um, it's always been very effective for kind of taking me to, you know, a place that like I'm nostalgic for, but have n- absolutely no reason for being nostalgic for it because I was born in 1990. Yeah. Right? That's, the, that's the effect of um, good music sometimes.
0: Yeah, ben, ben, I think also that 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 uh that tracks with who you are. You're 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 a very old soul, um, you know, a, a fan a fan of, you know, nineteen thirties and forties era movies, uh a, a huge fan of music from the the sixties you know, fifties and sixties and seventies. Um, you know, I, I think I think there are many who know you who who might believe that you were you were born maybe fifty years too late. Moving on to the second track on side B. If you want to talk about a band that plays intricately together, if you ever want to be challenged to learn a song as a musician, I challenge you to learn four sticks. Four Sticks, of course, gets its name because of the number of sticks that John Bonham held when he played this song. Uh, So this is one of those songs where, again, holding two different sets of drumsticks and using them simultaneously, the song also has competing riffs in two different time signatures. So there is a, a, essentially a competing riff of this song that is in 5-4 against a riff of 6-8, which means that y- you have what amounts to a 5-4 against a 3-4 in terms of time signature. And so the, the very fact that this song works at all is, is a feat of, of technical ability and again, they're doing all of this before computers. They're doing all this before people have the ability to kind of count all this in. This is just stuff they understand. And John Paul Jones, Jimmy Page, and John Bonham writing these writing these intricate pieces together. Uh, four Sticks is, um, in in some ways it is a song that I I don't know if I would find it as enjoyable if I wasn't a musician, but being, being a musician, listening to this song, no matter how many times I hear it, I can't help but sit back and just be blown away at the technical prowess on display in this song. It it is
1: maybe the one song on this album that doesn't appear on some form of zeppelin compilations right it's not on like the mothership compilation the early days and latter days compilation it's on none of those and it's not on any of the live albums uh because if i remember this correctly i think they played it live once ever and didn't play it again you know so it's it's the it's the the real underdog of the record because it had no chance as a single Mm -hmm. it's not it's not a catchy song and because of the time signature it's not really a toe tapper um, because it's a very complicated song to keep up with if you're just Mm -hmm. kind of tapping and nodding along uh really no hook um but again for musicians like you were saying i think it is a a definite highlight on the record it's a huge flex
0: that's, that's a good way of putting it. It is. It, it is. It is the biggest flex of a song on this album. I mean, I. I mean, I like this song. It's yes. the, you
1: know, yeah. I put it above like rock and roll, personally.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, the third track on side B, I think the. <laughs> so what I was saying when I said this is the the better version of what they're doing in Battle of Evermore. It's it's not what they're doing. The mandolin heavy songs we get the third track of side a and the third track of side B are both mandolin heavy songs in terms of their instrumentation of the two mandolin heavy songs going to California is the one that is, um, better executed, but I'm, I'm with you in that they are doing very different things. This is a much more, a kind of folk pop song, whereas battle of evermore is, is trying to do something very different, but going to California, what again, leaning into this thing of this kind of pop sensibility that it turns out Led Zeppelin have for this kind of hard rock band for, for a band that's often cited as one of the huge influences in the creation of heavy metal here, they're doing this thing. I'm going to California where, I mean, man, this, this could be a song on, you know, seven different other kind of, pop rock band's albums.
2: Spend my days with a woman unkind. Smoke my stuff and drink all my wine. Made up my mind, make a new start. Going to California with an aching in my heart. Someone told me there's a girl out there with loving her eyes and flowers in her hair. My chances on a big jet plane, never let them tell you that we're all, all the same. Oh, the sea was red and the sky was gray. one it had tomorrow, could ever follow today?
1: Yeah, I mean, there's a girl out there with flowers in her hair, all that kind of stuff. You know, it's... It's influences right there, going to California, right? So it's it's the Laurel Canyon. Mm-hmm. You no, know, it, it's it's all trying to capture, you know, and instead of using like a 12 string or six like 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 a Rickenbacker, right? It's the acoustic guitar against the mandolin, mm-hmm. right? Which is kind of how they're channeling that bird's sound. Also, and they were they've they've said as much, Joni Mitchell, yes. huge influence. Mm-hmm. On, on this song right going to california she has a song california this year right on on the record blue and of course the album before this lady the canyon you know a, 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 some major influence i'm sure on this right so they're going for that laurel canyon thing yeah right i mean they've gone for the blues rock thing the early rock and roll pastiche the very english you know battle of evermore the the ballad the epic poem the stairway the groovy near glam rock misty mountain hop the jazzy four sticks and now this very contemporary right going to California you know this for eight tracks this album has a lot to offer and I think it's what makes people go back to it over and over again because it's not just like the first two records where it's like this is blues rock here you mm-hmm. go and it's not the third album which is you know, very complicated. And it also has a little bit of all these things, but it's also, it's like 10 tracks versus like the eight or nine that you're used to getting from Zeppelin. Maybe it's a little bit too long for some people back then. I don't know. Um, but like going to California, I mean, this is probably, I mean, they're leading up to this point with, um, that's the way on the third album and Tangerine, like you can see them going toward going to California and, you can make the case that this is the best type of that Zeppelin song is going to California. This for this record, I mean, going to California could be my favorite song on this record.
0: undeniably, this is a top five for me on yeah. on on this record. And, and again, so it, uh, kind of seeing this and, and maybe, maybe you're right. Maybe this isn't as hot hot a take as some some people might think it is. But again, other than Four Sticks, which doesn't really get a lot of do, but again, because it's, it's a hard song for them to play live. It doesn't really have much of a groove to it, but what's in front of Four Sticks is Misty Mountain Hot, maybe the grooviest, you know, record song they've done in in this half of their career, Mm -hmm. you know, and then going to California, this other kind of very pop, very, you know, kind of contemporary sounding song for 1971 are kind of on both sides of four sticks. And then we end, you know, in many ways, you're talking about kind of Black Dog starting the the record off, kind of returning to the blues. Yeah. We we are this whole album is bookended by these huge blues numbers by starting off with Black Dog and ending with what might be my second favorite song on the whole record, When the Levy Breaks. You can go on YouTube right now and find a dozen deep dives into the drum sound on when the levee breaks and how they got that sound and what they're using and what the room is like and what the microphones are. I mean, th- there are classes taught in music engineering and music, produ- music production school around this lone recording is when the levee breaks the drums on this song might be the biggest drums we get in all of 70s rock music.
1: Yeah. I mean, especially this early in the seventies
0: mm-hmm. you
1: know. Um, and it's, it's a big drum kit in a big room. Yeah. I mean, that, I mean, that's the secret. And I think it's just two mics. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, correct me if I'm wrong. I haven't, from my understanding is they're in this big manor and they're pretty much in the hall. Mm-hmm and they have two microphones kind of suspended in the air and and that's where I believe they probably just hollowed out the drum kit they probably took maybe the the front of the the front drum head probably off and just let it fill the room potentially I don't know um but those two mics suspended in the air in that great big hall and just gave them that kind of like natural reverb that they needed of course now i'm sure probably go on pro tools and click a you know when le- when the levies break, uh, when the le- when the
0: levy breaks, like, plug in, yeah,
1: plug in, you know, on, you know, now, um, I mean, but that's that's just to say that's how foundational,
0: yeah, like, this I, I mean, sound
1: uh, of this kid is,
0: yeah, and, and on this song in particular, the, there is an entire school of the way in which live drums are recorded and mic'd. Mm -hmm. And, and the way that compression and early delay effects were used, I mean, there's, it's, it's this perfect time. 1971 is this perfect time where, or actually 19, it was the end of 1970, beginning of 1971, where the, the technology is kind of just, you know, the, the newest technology is coming out and there's there's artists like Led Zeppelin who have been successful enough that they're some of the first that have access to this, but there's also enough experience, you know, again, because here they are at this kind of big estate country house that is three, you know, that essentially is three, three floors high that has one central kind of staircase that goes to, to both the second and third floor. And what they do is they place the drums at the bottom floor of this, uh, of essentially the, the staircase. So it's a lobby that has, you know, talk about vaulted ceilings, it's going up three stories. And what they do is they hang two microphones down from the third floor. And what they're doing, because, you know, again, so you're getting this huge sound, but you're getting so much reverberation in that room and they're essentially setting the the compressors on these microphones that is just receiving all of it. And since sound, you know, the, the, the engineering or the, the physics of sound is just, you know, sound waves that are pushing air. You have all this space. So all of this air is moving around in this space with these huge drums. And so it, it, the drums feel big, but they also feel alive because they feel like they're breathing. And and essentially what that's happening is you're getting all of that reverberation and all the ways in which the air is moving around these two microphones suspended that high above. And then you add to it, they're one of the first bands to ever use a, 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 uh, an effect called the Benson Echo Rec, which is essentially was the, the precursor to the Echo Rec units and the delay units that were made famous in the later 70s. But they're one of the first bands to ever use essentially an Echo Rec or a delay unit on drums and so that sound that you get the hugeness of the drums on this song it really doesn't i mean it changes the direction of the way rock music is recorded for the next 50 years well not only that
1: you know it is a drum beat that gets the attention of early hip-hop yeah you know this becomes sampled a lot in the in the 80s in, in the world of hip-hop um it was sampled i mean they they had to give zeppelin a writing credit on Beyonce's Lemonade, on the song Don't Hurt Yourself for this song. The influence on this has longevity, and the influence goes very far, right, even outside of of
0: rock music. Yeah. So we have talked about him a number of times over the year and a half of this podcast, but the famous music critic from The Village Voice, Robert Christgau, said in his review of this album that When the Levee Breaks is the crowning achievement. Of this album
1: well no doubt uh, because it's not it's not pastiche, yeah, you know it's it's new, it's a new thing
0: so looking at the eight tracks of this of this album and kind of going through each one, what is what's kind of the you know going through the whole album, what's your takeaway of the forty two minutes in these eight songs? Mm-hmm. You know, when, when we kind of take the time to go through them one by one.
1: I'm, I'm grateful that it is a eight track, you know, about 42 minutes. Cause this is a great, you know, I love symmetry on, you know, with two sides of the record and I love a record that can clock in about 45 minutes or less. Love that. Um And they had, they had talked about doing uh, making this a double LP and there are some songs they worked on during these sessions that ended up on physical graffiti. Mm-hmm. You know, so I'm glad it's not a double album. They had talked about releasing it as a, a set of EPs. Also was like one potential way of doing this. Um, so I think they landed on the best way to make a Zeppelin record. I, I went through their discography again, and it's a very easy one to get through because they're very considerate. I think of um, the time that someone has been listening to a record. Yeah. You know, because um, all the records are some are only seven songs long, eight, nine, ten, and then of course Physical Graffiti, which is a double LP, uh, which is over eighty minutes. But even then, it's
0: only like fifteen tracks, right? Or f- not even.
1: I think it's I think it's seven on the first disc and then nine on the next.
0: So, six, so sixteen.
1: I think that's I think that's it, which is only two more songs than Revolver yeah <laughs> um, and blonde on blonde that's a cool 14 songs but anyway um you know so i think they're there but these are people who are you know very considerate about lps you know and this is the height of you know album kind of centric music you know and, and rock music and people are writing about albums it's not just about the singles and the hits you know, it is about the album, you know, this is a band who, you know, after this, they did houses of the holy physical graffiti and into the outdoor, you know, so they, they have eight albums, you know, and most of that's because, you know, John bottom died, you know, so they called it quits after that, but, you know, every one of the records is, is, is good. Mm -hmm. And some of them are great. And they have a couple that you can call a masterpiece. There's a reason why they are kind of the quintessential classic rock band. They're kind of the gold standard for what we call like classic rock, mm-hmm. right? Stadium, rock, like that arena rock kind of thing. Um, you know, and it's at this time that they are performing these huge shows that are, I mean, they're at this point, after this record comes out, they are doing the biggest shows like in rock music. This is huge. What this album and this band um, did for music at this time, at least, you know, this heavy style
0: of music. So this is the fourth or fifth album we have done on the podcast from 1971 blue. What's going on. There's a riot going on.
1: And now this one,
0: and then we'll do tapestry later this year. Yep. Yep. Yeah.
1: And I've got at least a couple more from that year that I'll nominate at least one more for sure.
0: Yeah. 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 I mean, I, I think, I, you know, I think we, we said this already in our bonus episode late last year looking at 1971, but I think, I think again, you know, this is, this is another picture of man, like what was in the water that year, that these albums are all coming out and and again kind of like we mentioned like even in a song that you go into california like you're hearing not just all these albums come out around the same time but you're hearing even as close as they're coming out together you're hearing the influence of one another in in these albums yeah um, well there's a
1: sense that all the artists are are pushing each other yeah i made music very exciting that time, I mean, and there wasn't as much music as there is now either which makes that very easy you know especially when you look at like the 60s right about how paul mccartney was being pushed by brian wilson who's being pushed by phil specter who's being you know so like all these kind of producers just like trying to push out like the best song and the best single or the best record and you have dylan who's doesn't really care about all that and yet somehow is topping all of them um in the 70s too you you feel you get this sense that everyone's kind of looking at each other somehow you know John Lennon is looking at Harry Nilsson and and somehow and like Bowie and Bolin and there's just a lot more people in the 70s but yeah looking at what's going on followed by there's a riot going on like just everything's just seemed much more in conversation with each other and seem to be commenting more on like the present mm-hmm. moment, you know, in a way that just made music, I think just more exciting. Um, and rock criticism was different than too. It wasn't just like a process of rating things and grading things, you know? So the way people wrote about music was also very different back then. Yeah. So yeah. Again, talking like a, you know, I'm 30 years old, but I'm nostalgic right, for a time that, predates me by decades
0: yeah. <laughs> well Mikai, let's let's address the question and and i think given that this is an album that you know everyone other than nme says is a top 100 album of all time and nme says it's 106 mm-hmm. i i think i think we're, we're picking a pretty safe choice here but let's ask the question does this album deserve to be on our list of the hundred greatest albums ever made.
1: Yeah, it does. And I I was surprised and now, well, and also surprised at how easy it was for me to listen to this song three times in one day again. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like this goes down smooth, you know, like, and I've, I've been listening to this record for a long time, you know, since I, you know, for, like more than half my life now, you know, I've, I've been listening to this record and I've been listening to it as someone who is kind of discovering, you know, rock music and rock history for the first time and discovering it again as someone who has started collecting records and hearing it again that way. And now listening to it again for the purpose of this podcast and, and, I've, and I've enjoyed it differently in different ways for a long time now and I just think that this album rules and I think that there are a couple other records that can maybe stand in its place um, the only well, actually no I think the only record I'd be comfortable from Zeppelin other than this one would be third
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, Zeppelin 3 rather I'd be comfortable if that were the one and, and I would like that because it's more of an underdog pick but I mean, just just looking at these eight tracks and thinking about kind of the intention behind them and how this works as just eight tracks, 42 minutes and some change. You know, I I just think that this is one of the kind of foundational classic rock records. And we're not going to have ACDC, right? And I think High Voltage and Highway to Hell and Back in Black are great classic rock records. Um, Toys in the Attic and Rocks by Aerosmith great classic and their uh, 75 live album i think is really good too yeah um but in terms of like all the classic rock stuff um zeppelin are the best
0: yeah they're 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 the best in in this in this will likely be the only kind of quote-unquote classic rock band that makes our list
1: right and i think this is the best classic rock album of all time
0: yeah yeah, I think, I think I agree with that. Well, listener, what do you think? Led Zeppelin's four, is this an easy and obvious pick for you? What do you think about this album? What's your favorite song on this album? Let us know on Twitter at youforgotonepod one pod on Instagram at you forgot one. Of course, our website is youforgotone.com. And we're going to leave you now with a non four song from Led Zeppelin from their third album, here's Tangerine.
2: Measuring the summer's day I only find it slips away to gray The hours they bring me pain living reflection mm-hmm. from a dream mm-hmm. I was mm-hmm.